were just so excited about the fact that they were predicting uh, that we wouldn't be able uh, to get our ticket punched here out of Iowa. But I can tell you, because of your support, in spite of all of that that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. So Ron DeSantis lost the Iowa caucus to Donald Trump by 30 points. Why is he celebrating? (laughs) Well, all along it was kind of a race for second place. And there was so much of that time that Haley was thought to have a slight edge on him. He kept saying he felt like an underdog. And then blammo, he got about 2,000 more votes than she did. So uh, (laughs) it's a victory in that sense, I guess. That's my colleague Sarah Larson. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker. In the lead-up to the Iowa caucuses, Sarah followed Ron DeSantis around the state, where he had invested so much time, money, and effort campaigning. And in the end, he still didn't come close to winning. He barely even came in second, edging out Nikki Haley by just a couple thousand votes. Sarah Larson joins me today to discuss Trump and DeSantis' political styles and the challenges of covering an election that is shaping up to be a repeat of the last one. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. So losing by 30 points is always kind of embarrassing, but it seems like it's especially embarrassing here for DeSantis, given that he's the most ideologically conservative politician in the race, and his campaign was kind of built for Iowa, where people are, you know, largely conservative and evangelical. Given the demographics of Iowa and the fact that DeSantis seemed kind of primed to do well there, do you think that losing by 30 points is even more embarrassing than, you know, losing by 30 points in in another state, basically? That's a good point. I think in a way, yes, because of the more conservative voters I spoke to this week, and I spoke to many moderates also, moderate Republicans, uh, the more conservative ones were all deeply religious Christians whose one of their top priorities was pro-life. And a lot of those people were torn between DeSantis, Trump, some Haley, even if they didn't think that Haley's stance on abortion was strong enough. They, some of them understood that compromise is, you know, necessary in American politics. So, you know, you would hope that if there are impassioned DeSantis supporters, those would be the people. But in my somewhat small sample of people I spoke to, that didn't seem to be the case. I mean, just a couple days before the caucuses, pretty much everybody I talked to was undecided if they weren't voting for Trump. And many of those people said they'd vote for Trump in the general. So there were very few people I spoke to who were hardcore DeSantis. No one was DeSantis or bust. That's interesting, Um, (laughs) especially, you know, just given where DeSantis was at this point last year. I mean, I feel like it was a live question whether he was going to beat Trump out for the uh, yeah. the Republican candidacy. Yeah. Um, I mean, did you get the sense that there were people who used to be hardcore DeSantis supporters who um, had kind of given up on him or he had, you know, lost his luster over the past few months? No, I didn't get that sense. I mean, so I went to three events while I was here. Two of them were trade conventions that he was speaking at. And so a lot of those people were sort of moderate Republicans, quite a few independents. Um, And then the third event I went to was a DeSantis event sponsored by a political conservatives club. And 
you know, a lot of those people were undecided and it was it was a DeSantis event. Um, so, yeah, those, all the undecided voters at the uh, the DeSantis event. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. The people who founded the group that was hosting the event. I mean, this group has hosted all the candidates. Mm-hmm. So um, but they they were undecided. Um, the couple <laughs> who founded the group and one was a Haley supporter and the other was torn between Haley and DeSantis. Wow. Um, so, you know, speaking of um, the political groups and organizations that were involved in this race, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the strength of DeSantis's campaign in Iowa, at least on paper, just in terms of the advantages he had, you know, with money, funding, endorsements, his ground game, which, you know, so many pundits like to talk about. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, he famously, very famously, he wouldn't stop talking about it, did the full Grassley campaign in all 99 of Iowa's counties, which I'm sure didn't hurt. He had the endorsement of Bob Vanderplatz, and he had the endorsement of Governor Kim Reynolds, who was at two of the events I went to um, and is very much in favor of him. And actually, some of the people I spoke to at these events decided to vote for him because they liked her. So I'm sure that did move the needle in some cases. Um, But I have a theory, and it's not an original theory, that uh, DeSantis is just kind of personally hard to like. So plenty of people are voting on issues and the fine-tuned differences between Haley, DeSantis, and Trump. But in terms of charming and wowing people, I don't know how much of an edge DeSantis would have. He was very argumentative. um, And, you know, politically, that has been in his favor a lot of the time. But he tended to argue with people asking him questions if he felt defensive. Mm. And these were potential supporters or existing supporters. He just, if he feels the slightest bit attacked, even if it's just a curious voter who wants to know more, he can kind of get defensive and snippy. Trump, people have fun with. I don't. But other people do, uh, you know, and DeSantis, I don't think, is a lot of fun. Yeah, you anticipated my next question because I was going to say, like, (laughs) you know, sort of answering questions in a combative way and turning on the people who might be your supporters. That doesn't seem unique to DeSantis necessarily. I mean, I feel like we see that from Trump sometimes, too. But is Trump just funnier or it just works better on him? I mean, what is the difference there? Well, I think that goes a long way. I mean, Trump is very funny and he just he's such a he's such a weirdo. I mean, people really <laughs> fall in love with him and he talks about love constantly. I'm sure you've noticed this. Yeah. Um, he is always saying we love you. He just seems to have like a personal relationship with his crowd. And it is often a disenfranchised sort of, um, you know, a lot of people feel that they're not heard, he hears them, all of that stuff. And so there's just a level of personal connection that people have with him that they don't with a DeSantis or a Haley. Yeah, one of the most amusing stories that has come out of Iowa was um, Trump's rally where he was playing the Phantom of the Opera soundtrack. And not the soundtrack <laughs> to the, the Broadway show, but the soundtrack to the movie version of the musical <laughs> with like Gerard Butler <laughs> and Emmy Rossum singing. Um, and yeah, it was just, um, there was this amazing wow. Anderson Cooper interview with a reporter who was on the ground at this rally. And you can hear the, and Cooper has to stop and be like, is that Phantom of the Opera? <laughs> but apparently Trump loves 
Phantom. And he actually said something like, you know, when Phantom of the Opera closed, that, you know, even Phantom of the Opera can't survive during the Biden administration or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's truly incredible. You know, you talk about Trump being a weirdo and just kind of seeming like a person who has like interests and, you know, can actually develop a relationship with the people who support him. And I just haven't seen anything close to that from DeSantis ever. (laughs) There was also that funny line of conversation that's been going around about how people who feel socially awkward respond to DeSantis sometimes because he's socially awkward. Yeah. Which I thought was (laughs) kind of sweet. Uh, So there's that. There's that part of the the demographic. Well, I guess it kind of comes down to what people... um, you know, expect from a president and, and actually want yeah. from a president. Like, you'd, you'd yeah. like to think that it, at the end of the day that it doesn't, you know, come down to likability necessarily. I mean, I think likability yeah. is important. But um, I guess in this case, if Ron DeSantis, you know, has to drop out of the race because he wasn't likable enough, I don't think that I'll be, you know, spending my nights crying about it. But I think <laughs> that you would like to imagine a world in which someone who has like a lot of really great policy ideas and is smart and whatnot is able to kind of, you know, beat the, you know, the yeah. Trump-like charisma that's coming out of another candidate. And I guess we're, we're not really there right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, another big takeaway I had from the people I spoke with was that there were many moderates who were not caucusing. There were many people who mm-hmm. are proud independents, either registered independents or just consider themselves independent, who weren't registered Republican right now and weren't planning to register Republicans so they could caucus. So even if they liked Haley or DeSantis better than Trump and are Republican-ish, so would theoretically vote for whoever that candidate is, a lot of those people weren't caucusing. So that was kind of a bummer uh, to encounter that over and over because moderates were not as highly motivated, it seemed like, as diehard Trump people. What was the scene on on Monday night? I mean, um, ha- have you been to the Iowa caucuses before? Had you seen seen it go no, down before? No, and I I didn't go last night because I was supposed to fly out last night, but my plane got canceled. But kind of late. Um, it was a very low turnout. I didn't see the action inside the caucuses, but uh, it's a very small number of people, all things considered. You know, I think that the freezing temperatures. I mean. I'm used to cold. This was exceptionally cold. Wind chill was often negative 30, that kind of stuff. There were two blizzards last week. It's been pretty treacherous and quite painful. And so I think that only the highly motivated, you know, went out. So do you think that low voter turnout, um, you know, disproportionately affected DeSantis? Or there was the theory that um, because he had been focusing so much on the ground game, that if people are kind of frozen out and decide not to go because it's so cold, that it would be his, um, you know, the supporters that met with him in the diner or whatever that would come out to caucus for him, um, whereas Trump hadn't spent much time there. That's possible. But I mean, Vivek Ramaswamy did two full Grassleys, and he only got 7% of the vote, you know. I think he was trying to charm everybody in the state of Iowa, including with free beer, but these things don't always work. And and if you're an anti-Trump optimist, if you combine DeSantis and Haley, that's a fair percentage of voters who did not vote for Trump. Yeah. You know, you don't necessarily have to look at it like two losers and a giant victor. Because uh, what was the percentage of votes that wasn't for Trump? About 50? 
Yeah, which is, I mean, that's why people are talking about how one of them needs to drop out, um, you know, with mm. the assumption that <laughs> the never-Trump voters would coalesce around whoever is remaining. Although, I don't know, based on what you've been saying, there's a chance that that would very much be the case. But I guess I just always thought that based on how um, kind of extreme DeSantis's positions were, that a DeSantis voter wouldn't become a Haley voter once DeSantis is out of the race. Yeah, that's a good question. Although I did talk to so many undecided DeSantis-Haley people. So who knows? They have more in common than we think. <laughs> Maybe they do. Maybe <laughs> they can be friends after all this. <laughs> so, so Sarah, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about um, just where the DeSantis campaign kind of goes from here. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You'll hear more of the political scene from The New Yorker in just a moment. So you mentioned that the the Iowa caucuses, that it's kind of this like long event that drags on and you have all these people standing in line. But it also seemed like after the results came out, DeSantis's campaign staff spent the whole night attacking the media for calling the race for Trump too early and basically saying that the race was called before some caucus goers even had cast their votes and that the media was in the tank for Trump, as they put it. I mean, do yeah. you think that that was just like a cope or... Do you think that there's some truth to the claim that it was too early to call? Because just from my perspective, I remember thinking like, oh, like the caucuses, like it's at 7 p.m. Central. So it's 8 p.m. Eastern. So I'm kind of like looking at my phone at 8. And then I feel like it was like like 8.15. Yeah. It wasn't very long um, before it was just like Trump has won by like a definitive margin. Yeah. I, I was seeing that on television. There is like 3 percent of the vote in and it was sort of... It did seem as if networks were calling it for him with a very small percentage. But also DeSantis is very quick and eager to call the media out on anything that seems to portray him as a loser, including some of the questions he argued with from potential voters. Um, he would say, oh, that's a media narrative. So I think that's a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. They're eager to be painted as victims, I feel like, a bit. Yeah, they all are. I mean, it's interesting, like this question of like election interference and, and whatnot. I feel like, um, yeah. you know, obviously Trump talks about that. And now you have yeah. DeSantis invoking a similar concern. Yeah. It just like at the events that you've been to and whatnot, does that seem like something that is very much like in the air, like that voters are worried about? Election um, integrity kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was a little unnerved when I asked a moderate guy, an independent voter, about January 6th, and he would only talk to me about it off the record. And he was reasonable and read a wide range of, you know, news sources. Um, but he thought there were a lot of questions about the election and, you know, there were some valid concerns and so on. Um, so I think that idea has infiltrated with a lot of people, not just based on that that one guy, but um, it is a more common belief then. And, and a lot of polls obviously say that too, that a lot of Republicans think the election was stolen. But where do you go from there? Because if everybody yeah. starts saying that, you know, if everybody who loses says that the election was a fraud or something, how do we figure it out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you kind of, um, I guess we would have to do a general election the way that we do the Iowa caucus, which is to have everyone just line up. Um, 
<laughs> Somebody who caucuses told me that he found it a little unnerving because you didn't really know who was next to you and what they are going to try to convince you of. It does sound like a socially awkward way to vote, potentially. So I think maybe if you're shy, it could be. Yeah, no, I <laughs> feel like it's, it's, nice that, it's nice that voting is somewhat anonymous. Um, there's a whole other episode to do about peer pressure and the Iowa caucuses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is not a small thing. There are a lot of people who don't want to say what they think about Trump. And some of the people I would talk to who wanted to vote for someone besides Trump, if they referred to Trump kind of politely elided his name or just mm. um, it was like an older relative they felt a little bad for but loved <laughs> so much, you know, Yeah. Uh, and that if it came to it, they'd vote for him again, but they're hoping that someone younger could take over. But people are are not always willing to say anything bad about him. So I could imagine that if you're voting in a more public setting like that, that would be all the Stranger, you know, if you weren't voting for Trump and you're in a community of Trump lovers, that could be strange too and hard. Yeah, possibly. So, I mean, DeSantis has said that he um, he plans to stay in the race for the long haul, and that he plans to do this even though he's polling really poorly in New Hampshire and he's actually like skipped New Hampshire and he's like going straight to South Carolina to campaign there in Nikki Haley's home state. Um, and I guess, like, I've been trying to figure out sort of what his strategy is, and I'm wondering if he's kind of banking on there being a lot of people like the ones that you just described who, you know, actually aren't that sold on Trump, and maybe he can actually pick up some more supporters. I mean, what, what is your sense of what his plan is from here, or what kind of strategy might actually work for him? Well, you know, if I were on his campaign team, I would be a little bit worried about it, I guess, because... As you said, New Hampshire doesn't seem to be a big priority for him. I think because he knows he can't win New Hampshire. New Hampshire is not as religious as some other states. You know, it's in the Northeast, which can't help. Uh, I And I, I noticed that yeah. uh, DeSantis really, I think, clings to Florida like a security blanket. He <laughs> talks about it all the time. And of course, you know, some of that is is understandable. But you know, he talked to Iowa voters about their particular issues. One of the trade conferences he spoke to was a renewable fuels convention, which was kind of cool. But um, he actually said some things that I don't think would have appealed to a renewable fuels crowd. But in any case, um, he loves to knock New York and California. He loves to knock more liberal states. And I don't know if, hmm. you know, his so-called ground game would work in most of the states because he's kind of combative toward the bluer ones. And I don't really know how he's going to win. Like how does that work in a purple state or um, yeah. or in a northeast state that's surrounded by liberal bastions? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he just doesn't seem comfortable talking about things that aren't, you know, foreign policy type hawkish stuff or Florida stuff that he's very comfortable with. I don't think he's very adaptable to all the different American environments, but... Do you think that he has enough money to stay in the race for that long, even if he, you know, has kind of committed himself to being in it for the long haul? It just seems like he put so much effort into Iowa and did get a lot of yeah. um, de donations there. But, you know, now he's kind of going into the next race, doesn't have much momentum and has spent a lot of money already. Right. And considering how much he invested in Iowa and how 
little he beat Haley by and how much he lost to Trump too. It just doesn't seem like it bodes well for him. Um, and the Koch brothers foundation is behind Haley, right? So yeah. I, I don't know a ton about his, his money situation, but I don't think it's in great shape. There's been a lot of instability in his campaign in the last couple of months, but maybe he's invigorated enough by this resounding wind that he'll just power on and, uh, <laughs> go for broke. Maybe. I mean, I've been wondering whether, um, you know, DeSantis's commitment to stay in the race and what seems like Haley's commitment to stick it out, although I think at least in her case, part of it is that South Carolina is just so early in the schedule. Yeah. But I don't know. But I guess I'm just wondering whether DeSantis and Haley are going to be reluctant to drop out until they know the outcome of some of Trump's legal battles. Um, mm. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, at the, the events that you went to, does DeSantis talk about the legal stuff? Because I've been wondering whether, no, um, no he hasn't um, agreed with Trump that it's a witch hunt, but he's also not invoking the legal stuff as a reason not to vote for Trump? Not, not that I've seen. And I certainly haven't seen all his events or all his speeches. You know, when he would criticize Trump in the, the events I went to, it would be that he didn't finish building the wall. He didn't make Mexico pay for it. DeSantis claims that he's going to hold the Mexican drug cartels accountable, which I'm curious to see how that would happen. But, um, but you know, if he criticizes Trump, it's mostly because he didn't get something done or he had the right idea, but it didn't follow through. I have a kind of meta question for you about just like election coverage in general. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on it since you've been participating in it. Um, mm -hmm. Trump seems to have an insurmountable lead in basically all of these early primary states. And um, this is like so much so the case that the New York Times election needle, you know, that notorious yeah. election needle that went yeah. so, you know, wrong in 2016, right. it was actually devoted to tracking the runner-up race in Iowa. And I'm wondering why you think it is that we are so focused as a country on who comes in second to Trump. Like if that's just our way of coping with what seems to be an inevitability in terms of who was going to be the Republican candidate or whether that, too, has something to do with this idea that Trump is old. I mean, Biden is old, too. I mean, it's just um, it kind of looks like we know what the race is going to look like, but there are things that could happen, you know, right, even right. in the sense of, you know, Trump being thrown off the ballot in some states. I mean, do you just have a sense of like why we why do we care so much about runner up when we usually don't. <laughs> I mean, I think part of it is just extreme nervousness and anxiety among people who don't want to see him become president again, for one thing. Another is that we always cover the horse race and this is just how American life is. Yeah. I think a third thing is that the future of the party is so up in the air. Uh, one woman said that she thought it was time to move past Trump because he could only serve one term. So I think maybe there are some voters who would like to elect a Republican who could have two terms. Um, yeah. And also just someone younger and maybe without his baggage. <laughs> or as one guy said it's it. It's a great euphemism for it. Yeah. <laughs> without the extracurriculars uh, was one, one thing one guy said, which I really liked. Um, so I think some people are looking to the future and just seeing what other possibilities there could be. It is sort of like a test, you know, how how do these people handle themselves in this situation and could they be a national politician in the future? Um, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the, um, you know, the race to be 
second place to Trump. It seems like there is one thing that's kind of distinguishing DeSantis from Haley, which is that DeSantis has openly said that he would not be Trump's vice president. That's not something that he wants to do, Um, whereas Haley has been kind of like characteristically cagey when that is brought up. Did DeSantis talk more about that during those events you went to, just this idea that like he actually is running to be president and not running to be something else? Treasury Secretary no. or... <laughs> he, he, <laughs> he did not talk about that, but I think he's a very proud and insecure politician and person is my little theory. Uh, I, I just think that he thinks that would be a loser of a job to be vice president where, you know, other kinds of politicians would understand that it is an important job and a stepping stone and a possibility and all the rest. But I think he's just doesn't want to be seen as a runner-up. I, I think it's an ego thing. Yeah, no, I could, I could see it. Um, <laughs> I mean, and that, um, you know, is a good transition into the next question, which is just, um, I'm curious, since you've been doing this political reporting in Iowa, but of course you, you write about so many other things. I mean, you write incredible talk of the town pieces, you know, columns about podcasts. And so I, I guess I'm just curious about, how you're thinking about the race, you know, ahead of us as a as a cultural critic. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great question. And I think part of it is about how we imagine the future beyond Trump, whatever happens with Trump. Yeah. You know, he can't be the answer for the Republican Party forever. So just trying to come up with new ways of capturing voters and new ways of thinking and new ways of seeming like a strong leader I don't know, though. I really don't know what's going to happen. I have to sit down and imagine some interesting uh, scenarios and outcomes, because I feel like the thing that Trump taught us most of all is that if you make your own rules and just go at it hard enough, sometimes you will just get your way and you can invent your own reality. And that should not be inspiring because of what he did with it. But um, it does sometimes remind me that... um, you have to be creative and think of new <laughs> new ideas. And some of those ideas are how to exist in America in 2024, I think, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, what's interesting, too, is like I, um, I think that's totally one of the through lines of this election so far, this idea that so many people want, even in the Republican Party, which is, you know, usually the party of tradition and conservatism yeah. and whatnot, that they're looking for something new, something fresh, someone who's not you know, old, someone who's not Trump. But then at the same time, the new people who have been put forward as alternatives to Trump are much more in line with traditional ideas of what the Republican Party is, you know, than Trump. You know, like Nikki Haley, who was kind of like Mitt Romney 2.0, and then Ron DeSantis, who like, you know, he's like a Yale graduate. You know, he's like the kind of person who seems like he came out of the womb wanting to be president and not vice president, but president. Yeah, yeah. And is of course, so contemptuous of Ivy League schools and such. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing is the kind of catch-22 in Republican politics of not wanting a Washington insider, you know, wanting someone who isn't just a politician. And people think of Trump as being something other than a politician, even though he was president for four years and executed a lot of power while he was doing that. But they still think of him as just one of the guys somehow. Uh, And however much um, DeSantis 
rails against the swamp and so on. I think I do think, you know, DeSantis and Haley are seen as more conventional politicians. Um, Does it help not being a, a Washington insider like personally when you're reporting in places like Iowa? I'm not sure if um, you plan to follow the primaries <laughs> in some of the other states, but I'm wondering like if you've been able to sort of like harness your skills as a cultural reporter to do stories that you feel like are saying something different than just the usual you know, DeSantis and Haley are pretty close in the polls. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I certainly, you know, I'm not a political reporter. I'm not a political journalist. I've covered a lot of political events and I really love it. I mean, I'm actually kind of shy and I don't love going up to people I don't know and asking if they want to talk to the media because it seems like a bit of an imposition. But the people who do, I, I love talking to them. I love hearing what their interests are. I talked to a lot of people this week who's Political views are just completely the opposite of mine. And I had a lovely time talking to pretty much all of them. Um, and sometimes we would laugh at the same things or, you know, DeSantis often kind of ducks out of questions by not coming up with a solution to a problem, but rejecting the existing more Democrat-focused solution to a problem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when someone asked about Ukraine at an event, he was talking about pensions for Ukrainian bureaucrats rather than, you know, addressing the idea that Ukraine needs help in some way. And one of his likely voters was saying, you know, I didn't really like that he didn't answer that question. What's he going to do? Yeah, you can shoot down you know, the problems with what's being done, but what are you going to do? Um, so connecting with people over even little moments like that, it always does restore my sense of humanity a bit. I haven't been to any Trump rallies, so I don't, I think that might be a lot for me, but. Uh. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what, what that does. Um. I love venturing into <laughs> all these different places in America and talking to people though. I I really do. It's a wonderful it's a wonderful opportunity, and I feel glad that I get to do it. One question I have for you, um, you know, this category of, like, undecided voters, I feel like especially when, you know, you're kind of in, you know, like, the bubble of, like, liberal media, it's hard to even imagine, like, what an undecided voter looks like. It's like, how can yeah. you possibly be undecided in a, in a race like this? And I'm wondering, you know, after having had the opportunity to speak to so many undecided voters, whether you feel like you've learned something more about that group, you know, whether you kind of understand them more. Yeah. I mean, some of the people I talked to were single issue voters or close to single issue voters with the issue being abortion. So they were sort of undecided between the candidates' stances on abortion. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people want a simple answer because all of these questions are really hard and there are a great many of them and there are many crises happening at once. And if you're just deciding about one of the candidates' stance on abortion, that makes it a lot easier to figure out. And it's um, one place where the candidates actually all have different answers. Yes. But the other thing is there are a lot of people who are disenfranchised and care about politics and care about the issues, but feel like, you know, they may vote, but they don't really have faith in politicians. One guy said, you know, it's all well and good for him to come and talk to us at this event. It was a group of highway contract workers and listen to us and take our questions. But I think that all politicians, when they get back to Washington, 
their constituency is the kind of fancy people they have private dinners with, basically, is what he was saying. And that it happens to everyone. And he doesn't have a lot of, he said, everything he said today was perfect, but I don't really believe that any politician will necessarily follow through on these things. Uh, and I think a lot of people probably feel that way. So I think maybe if you feel that way, but you feel that Trump really listens to you or something, that might get you over the hump to vote. But um, if you're not feeling passionate about the other candidates, you might not be as highly motivated. I don't know. That makes sense. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Sarah Larson is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can read her dispatch from Iowa on newyorker.com now. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton-Brown. Enjoy your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.